Remember when people used Yankee Candle reviews to predict COVID surges? Uh, Was it just me? Well, it's back. Seriously. The idea resurfaced after a doctor noticed a handful of negative reviews on Amazon that said that the candles allegedly had no scent. Losing your sense of smell because of COVID was a more common symptom during the Delta wave. But I still might go check out my candle collection now, just to make sure that everything's up to snuff. This is Pulse Check. I'm Lauren Gardner. Here are a couple of headlines I'm watching. The CDC's vaccine advisors will vote Wednesday on including COVID-19 vaccines in the Vaccines for Children program. That program ensures that shots are available at no cost to kids under 18 who might otherwise not get vaccinated because their families can't afford to pay. COVID vaccines are still free to everyone who wants one and is eligible for a shot. But that's expected to change next year as the federal government runs out of money to cover their costs. And more than 100 bills have been proposed this year in Congress that deal with mental health. Here to talk with me about that is Grace Scullion. Hi, Lauren. Thanks. It's good to be here. So let's jump right into congressional action on mental health legislation. Democrats and Republicans don't agree on much in Congress. So why is mental health an area where we're seeing bipartisan legislation actually have a shot at moving forward? Yeah, I think it's sort of a twofold answer. I think, one, we often see mental health legislation momentum directly after mass shootings. That's sort of been a pattern over the past decade or so. But I think a second factor that is motivating both sides is that Americans are really concerned about mental illness and also experiencing a lot of it. So a recent survey found that more Americans are actually concerned about mental health than COVID. And one in five Americans report experiencing some symptom of mental illness. So Republicans and Democrats alike are hearing these calls of concern and also are probably experiencing it themselves, um, you know, in their own family members or coworkers. Let's go back to your gun violence point. Because I think you're right, you know, when you hear Republican members of Congress talk about mental health and possible legislation or government action to address mental health concerns, it often comes up in the context of gun violence and responding to that rather than, quote unquote, gun control. So do you Mm -hmm. think that's a factor in why Republicans might be, say, more inclined to greenlight money for mental health services and not necessarily feel the same way about other aspects of health funding? Yeah, I certainly think we're seeing that. I mean, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was pretty much developed in direct response to the shooting in Uvalde, dedicated almost $12 billion to mental health resources specifically. So we do see those direct lines of you know, calling for mental health support and then, especially on the Republican side, and then implementing it. I do think that the momentum is more sustained, though, than in times past that we've seen that sort of pattern happen. And another point that you brought up earlier is that the pandemic exacerbated a pre-existing problem mm-hmm. just with mental health concerns across the country in general. And it's it's to the point that both parties have some incentive here to respond and in doing so to compromise with each other. And it seems like every member of Congress really has seen mental health issues growing in their districts and states. I know before the recess, I covered an event. It was led by Democratic members of Congress, but they were part of the task force Mm -hmm. that you mentioned in your coverage and future pulse on mental health and addiction. 
And while there weren't any Republican members present, you know, they were just talking about how there's been a lot of interest among Democrats and Republicans alike to uh, work together, especially in the addiction vein as well. Yeah, actually, this is something that I spoke with David, Representative David Trone about, and he's one of the co-chairs of that task force in the House. And something that he brought up was that Republicans represent a lot of rural districts. And, you know, rural districts are the places where more people are dying of opioid overdoses and also where it's a lot harder to get access to mental health practitioners. So Mm -hmm. I think there's that motivation, too, that even Republicans may be feeling even more so than their more urban, representative, Democratic counterparts. So, so Grace, you know, we talked about some of these legislative efforts, and I, I know a lot of them have passed the House with bipartisan support and just, you know, the nature of Congress, it tends to be easier to pass things in the House, especially if they have leadership buy-in. So what what is the prospect of Senate action uh, when members come back to town after the midterm elections? In speaking with legislators, the sense I get is that people are optimistic that legislation about mental health will pass. The thing that the parties disagree on is just how much to invest in it. Mm-hmm. It's always money. Yeah, it's the money. And I think that's what you could see the hardest hit to um, is these bills that are really trying to invest huge dollar amounts, you know, um, into mental health services that we could see a big pullback on. Also, some of the bills that have passed the House that are slightly more controversial include one that would allow um, law enforcement agencies to hire mental health practitioners to respond to um, emergencies that, you know, police officers would traditionally respond to that will likely fail if Republicans gain control of the Senate. Mm. Same with another bill, the Mental Health Matters Act, that invests a lot in school-based services. There's a lot of concern about parental choice in that bill, and that will also likely die if Republicans have control of the Senate. All right. Great. Well, Grace, thank you so much for joining us today and walking through some of these bills with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Today, the FDA's new rule allowing over-the-counter hearing aids goes into effect. Prescription hearing aids cost anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000, while over-the-counter ones could go for a few hundred, although that won't happen immediately. My colleague David Lim has been covering this and is here to summarize what to look out for under the new rule. So earlier this year, in August, the FDA published a final rule or a regulation that basically set forward a path for over-the-counter hearing aids to be sold for the first time directly to Americans. The goal of the regulation was to essentially expand access to these types of products with the hope that more seniors and other people hard of hearing would gain additional access to this type of product. There are a lot of people who don't necessarily currently wear a hearing aid that the research shows could benefit. So that was kind of the overarching goal of the regulation, and it's been a long path. The hearing aid industry in the United States and and globally is fairly um, concentrated. So there's a handful of companies that currently sell hearing aids, um, and they're mainly distributed through audiologists. People are, at least until now, required to kind of go see an audiologist in order to get a hearing aid 
Um, part of that is what industry argues is kind of a safety mechanism to ensure that people are 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 properly benefiting from the hearing aids. Um, but a, a lot of the push to kind of bring over-the-counter hearing aids to the market um, was to kind of expand access for people who have mild to moderate hearing loss. So the Biden administration, when this regulation was finalized earlier this year, really was touting how quickly people in the real world would be able to benefit once these products were made available. So one thing that I'm closely looking at is what uptake of over-the-counter hearing aids will actually be like now that they're on the market. So that's one thing that I'll be keeping a close eye on. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Lauren Gardner. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening. <laughs>